Thanks, Trevor. Morning. Good to be with you today. In fact, you're going to be inflicted with me for, uh, for three weeks, but not all in a row. So you'll get a break in between them. Um, but before the end of November, I'm down to do three Sundays with you. And uh, I want us to try and follow through a theme, um, even though it's not all in a row. And maybe we'll be able to make a link. Um, I want us to read this morning from Acts chapter 5. Uh, not, not a story that's a high point in the Christian church and not a story that uh, is often used in sermons to the best of my knowledge um, but something that, that happened that was quite shocking in the life of the early church to do with a couple called Ananias and Sapphira Acts chapter 5 Now a man named Ananias together with his wife Sapphira also sold a piece of property With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart, that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men. But to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young man came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that's the price. How could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young man came in and, finding her dead, and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Pretty, pretty uplifting story. And uh, I'm quite shocking. I used to have dreams, big dreams. I wanted to play cricket for England. And I wanted to play rugby for Ireland. And if I don't turn up tonight, it's because the call has come in their dire straits. My other dream was I'd love to get to Augusta for the Masters, to... uh, to play it or, or just watch it would have been great, although I'd love to kill it like Tiger. Jesus had a big dream, a dream for his church to get into every part of the world and make disciples. In other words, his dream was for the church to change the world. And I can't help but wonder if that vision of changing the world has leaked from the church more than we would care to admit it. We're struggling these days. We're struggling with diversity. We're struggling with pluralism. We're struggling with rapid change in the world around us. And we're struggling because religion is often blamed for much of the problems in the world. All of that can eventually take its toll on us. At best, We can struggle to know how to show respect to those who have a different view and to present what we believe to be exclusive truth in a very inclusive age. At worst, 
we may be even tempted to lose confidence in the gospel and decide that, well, maybe it's better after all if faith is kept for private lives. In many ways, the early church faced similar problems to us. They lived in a world of many gods and where arguably our supreme god of gods today is supposed to be tolerance, their supreme god was supposed to be Caesar. There is no god but Caesar. And yet in a world like that, it wasn't going to hold them back. One writer put it like this. The early Christian church in the first three centuries after Jesus' resurrection brought about the most amazing transformation of diverse social and religious cultures ever achieved by peaceful means in the history of the world. They did change their world. They made a huge difference. And for the three Sundays that I'm with you today in November, I hope that we will learn something from the experience of the early church, mainly in the book of Acts, that might stimulate our own thinking about how we today can go about keeping the dream alive. The dream of changing the world with the gospel of Jesus. And this morning we're going to focus on the issue of reality. I don't know about you, but I I think we live in the most cynical world. If you think of public life in the UK over the past 20 years, it's been dominated by one scandal after another involving political leaders or celebrities. We have lived through the age of spin. And much of it doesn't wash anymore and it looks like we could be heading for another election. And goodness knows what will come out in the wash there. We've got this insatiable media which is pretty much characterised by digging the dirt. Assume there's muck to be found everywhere and you'll find it. Don't believe what you see. It's only hiding some murky secret underneath. We've tabloids and glossy magazines eating their fill gorging themselves on the private lives of celebrities. And of course, nothing sells more than scandal. The same media that builds them up will knock them down when they prove too good to be true. We live in a world that just isn't real. Last um, weekend, I was preaching in a church in London, and we went over for a couple of days before to to stay with the minister and his wife, really to get a, a cheap weekend in London. That was the height of it. And on Saturday, these people, like dressed for church, were going past his door. And I just thought, maybe there's a Seventh-day Adventist church there. So I asked them. And he said, no, no, they're all going to the synagogue. And I, I looked a bit more closely. It was the Sabbath. It wasn't just any Sabbath. It was Yom Kippur last Saturday, the Day of Atonement. Biggest day in the calendar. And all these people were parking their cars in the street outside Sean's house. Getting out of it with their Sunday best, like almost go to wedding clothes, suits, hats for the ladies, Bibles, trainers. Trainers with suits. And I'm going, what's all this about? Well, of course, it was the Sabbath. They're not supposed to be driving their cars on the Sabbath. So they drive their cars to just round the corner from the synagogue and then walk the rest. And if you put your trainers on, the rabbi thinks you've walked the whole way from home. I mean, how unreal is that? And then, yesterday, even the divine Nigella, I mean, she who can do no wrong, is exposed as a fake. I don't ever watch her stuff. Like her food, have cooked a bit of it. But if you read the the papers yesterday, you'll see that, that she was caught out, that her TV show is all a big pretend. 
Even the church is suffering. Leaders are put on a pedestal and then they come crashing down to earth with a thud. Many high profile cases in the last few years of affairs or abuse or fraud from those who have set themselves up as great pillars of the truth telling everyone else how to behave whilst they have these glaring failures in their own lives. And how often do we hear the word hypocrite levelled at the church? What's the solution to all of this? How can the church impact a world that is like this? I can only think of one answer. We need to be real. One of the things I've noticed about the early church is their honest reality. They didn't pretend to be what they weren't. They didn't pretend to have it all together. A guy called Pearson um, summed up the story of the Acts and he, he wrote this. It is a portrait of the early church. We hear its basic message proclaimed. We see a new lifestyle emerge. We encounter power and courage. And with it we find fear. Half-hearted faith. Greed. Conflict and the struggle to understand the faith. These believers were all too human. But these ordinary people did extraordinary things as they responded to the risen Christ. And just a quick run through some of the incidents of the early church will we'll show you how real they were. Matthew 28 verse 17, intriguing verse. Jesus has, has risen from the dead and appeared to his disciples. And they're on the mountain and it says, When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Now think about it. Jesus has seen uh, the disciples several times since the resurrection. They've been with him all that time. They've heard what he taught. They've watched what has happened. And they still doubted. These were the people who were going to build the church, the key leaders. And we find they still weren't too sure about what was going on. And I suppose the message from that for us is that it's all right to have questions. Even to have doubts. Take a quick look through the Old Testament and you see God responding to people who had questions. The people who struggled with their faith. It's a tremendous relief to know that when you come to God, you don't have to put on a show. You don't have to pretend that you have it all together. In Genesis 18, we see Abraham getting into a bargaining situation with God over what God is going to do to Sodom. Abraham just, well, he just thinks that what God is doing can't be right. And he tells him. But God doesn't get angry. Instead, God engages all the more. And we're left with the impression in this exchange that Abraham stopped negotiating before God was ready to stop. Moses argued with God. Moses protested to God to try and convince God that he picked the wrong man. David's Psalms regularly show David asking God questions like, How long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? Mary was flabbergasted when, when told the news of this miraculous conception. She said, how can this be? Or if you want to put it in our language, you can't possibly be serious. Questions are okay. Doubts are okay. In fact, questions come from humility. From a recognition that I'm not God. And that I can't possibly have all the answers. And so rather than us thinking that a faith that has questions isn't good. I think it's probably far worse to have a faith 
that leaves no room for questions. Because then you think you're God. Acts 1 verse 6. So when they met together they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? After the years with him, they they still haven't got it. Jesus isn't about restoring a kingdom to Israel or, or defeating the Romans. They've seen him live. They've heard him teach. They've witnessed Calvary and the resurrection. And they still aren't clear. And then as you move on in the story of of the early church, Acts 6 verse 1, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Racism has started to kick in in the early church and that causes moaning and complaining. This was not the perfect church. If you read on in Acts 12, Peter has aroused the suspicion of King Herod who subsequently throws him into prison. Well, like any good church, the local believers meet to pray for Peter. And miraculously, he's released from prison and he comes to them. Rhoda, a servant, goes to the door when Peter knocks and and she's so shocked she forgets to let him in. Instead, she rushes back in to tell them all what has happened. And what was their response? You're out of their mind, out of your mind. They're praying for it and they don't even believe it when their prayers are answered. And then if you jump into Acts 15, the emerging church facing its most momentous decision to date. Did you have to become a Jew to become a Christian? Or could Gentiles be followers of Christ without having to go through Jewish rituals? This wasn't a little matter. Especially if you had been brought up and this was all part of your life. It was every part of your life was tied up in this. All the leading figures were together. Seeking to know God's way forward. And as they worked it through and made their decision, we get this fantastic statement. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and us. I I just love the way they phrased that. It seemed good. They didn't claim absolute certainty. Or they didn't claim that they had a direct word from God. They sensed that this was God's leading. And they took responsibility to make the decision, trusting God in it. They didn't abdicate responsibility and insist on a a miraculous intervention. But neither were they arrogant enough to say that they exactly knew God's mind. They took a tentative step on a new journey with God, sensing this was where he wanted them to go. And then having managed to avert a major split in the church... What's the very next incident recorded for us in Acts 15? Well, it tells us that the two key figures, Paul and Barnabas, had such a sharp disagreement that they went their separate ways. Quite astonishing, really. Almost impossible to believe that the two church giants could get to this point right after the Council of Jerusalem. And for me it's even harder to believe that they would include it in the story and tell us that they did it. Such striking honesty. Painting a very real picture of the early church and and particularly of its leaders. Actually you'll find it's a Bible characteristic. And for me it's part of the integrity of scripture. Think about it. If you were sitting down to write the holy book for your religion, would you let so many of your leading players be so human? Would you catalogue the major mistakes that they'd made? 
And yet, of course, this isn't just the story of the early church. This isn't just about 2,000 years ago, because these are our stories. Questions, doubts, misconceptions, moaning, fallouts, uncertainty about God's leading. Don't, don't we relate to all of those things? Don't we have to admit that in the church today we still don't have everything together? And that maybe the best thing we could do is admit that and be real about it? For me that striking episode in Acts chapter 5 shows how important reality is to God. It starts in chapter 4 where people were selling what they owned and sharing out the proceeds amongst the church. Undoubtedly that produced some kind of feel-good factor in the church. And so this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, decided that they wanted to be in on the act. So they sold the property and brought some of the money to Peter. But together they agreed on a deception. They would give part of the money but pretend it was the whole amount. Now it's important to notice, as Peter said to them, that in God's eyes, their crime was not to keep some of the money. This money was their money and they could do with it as they pleased. That wasn't their crime. Their real crime was to pretend. To put on a show of false piety. And they were struck dead. As God acted, showing that above all, he expects honesty. Reality. I actually think it's not just what God expects. It's also what our very cynical world needs to see. Honesty and reality from Christians. We need to stop pretending. I brought my boss here one Sunday night to speak to Joel Edwards. And he said this a few years ago and it, it left a mark on me. Just because we're right with God doesn't mean we're right about everything else. And yet sometimes we can pretend that we have all the answers. Our evangelical certainty kicks in, especially theologically. We're so sure. We're so black and white. Even when it comes to very tricky issues, we know the answers. Take your pick. Literal six-day creation or not. The role of women in the church. Which Bible versions are appropriate? Sunday observance, end times, church governance, music, gifts of the Spirit, miracles, and so on and so on. And so often we can be characterized by this rigid certainty that we're right, and anybody who differs slightly is to be dismissed. You only have to log on to some of the many Christian blog sites on the web to see Christians tearing each other to pieces. Each of them claiming to have truth on their side. Often they will use a phrase like, the Bible clearly says. And two of them will use that phrase to argue a completely opposite point. Now of course it's good to grapple with truth. And it's good to grapple with scripture and try and sort things out. But only if we can do it with a reality and an honesty that admits that we don't have all the answers neatly sewn up. And that we're pilgrims on a journey. Can anyone in here say that they have never ever changed their minds about anything? I would doubt it. 
And so if you've changed your mind in the past about something, chances are you could possibly change your mind again about something. Anyway, could we possibly put God in a box? Do any of us honestly think that when it comes to the Christian faith, to Almighty God, that we could have all the answers? And on top of that, the world isn't fooled when we try to give the impression that we have it all together. Our neighbours and our friends probably don't listen very much to our theology, even if we talk it. But they do see how our faith plays itself out in our everyday lives. They see how we treat them and how we treat each other. They see what we struggle with. They see how we react to trials and how we behave in work when it's difficult. How we cope with stress, how we deal with illness and death and all the other stuff that the world throws up at us. And it's our actions in those situations that will show whether our Christian faith is real or not. They will judge our Christian faith by how they see it work in our lives. And if we can show them that we don't have everything sorted out, but that we're journeying through life with Christ, knowing his presence, seeking to follow his example, honest about our weaknesses, and yet showing that our faith in the living God makes a difference to how we face life, then we have a chance of impacting them. I just think this cynical world is crying out for that kind of reality. To see real people, to see the real Jesus' life lived in his people. Not a fake, false spirituality of the Ananias and Sapphira type that's just done for show. I guess sometimes even church isn't an easy place to be real. Our smiling faces and pleasant exteriors can sometimes hide a multitude of problems, doubts, fears, pressures, relationship issues and and a whole lot more. And even how we tackle problems in church can reveal a lack of reality and, and it explains why in church so many issues are never dealt with. I don't know about you, but have you never felt like in church you're just like walking on broken glass? I've been thinking for, for Alice having to tell you to stop turning those heaters down. Or if you do, and she did it so kindly. I couldn't have done it that kindly. Roy Gamble certainly couldn't have done it that kindly. But, you know, we're always walking, walking on eggs because we know there's one person sitting out there who's just going, come on, offend me. You know, I'm waiting. In fact, I'll be disappointed if you don't. And sometimes we just can't deal with issues honestly. I think it was last year I was given this book. It's called Velvet Elvis. Intriguing title by a guy called Rob Bell. I I found it a fascinating read and really enjoyable. Very stimulating. I I would recommend you read it. Even Even if you don't agree with all of it, read it and wrestle with it. Anyhow, he tells the story about how their church started. And after six months, they'd gone from nothing to 4,000 people coming. In six months. As you can imagine, that caused them a few logistical problems. Particularly in the car park. And eventually, some people started reacting to each other in the car park. And harsh words would be exchanged. And then it progressed from that to offensive hand signals. Which I will save you... um, 
the embarrassment of me doing to you. So one Sunday Rob Bell as the pastor stood up and announced this. If you are here and aren't a Christian, we are thrilled to have you in our midst. We want you to feel right at home. But if you're here and you're a Christian, and you can't even be a Christian in the parking lot, please don't go out into the world and tell people you're a Christian. You'll screw it up for the rest of us. And by the way, we could use your seat. (laughs) How do you think they responded? Here's what he said. People cheered. The more honest, the more raw, the more stripped down we made it, the more people loved it. And I read that and I thought, Northern Ireland? If only. I couldn't help but wonder what the reaction in most Northern Irish churches would have been to that. My guess, it would have been roast the minister. How dare anyone speak like that to us? I've known ministers roasted for way less than that. (laughs) And yet, you know, that's being real. That's just honest. That's a church facing its failures head on. The failures that everybody else could see. But that sometimes we try to pretend aren't there. The failures that the apostles in the early church were willing to confront and admit and write down so that the rest of the church in centuries to come could learn from their mistakes. How badly we need to confront our own reality. To acknowledge that the Christian life isn't just about coming to the cross once, getting saved and thinking that's it, I'm now sorted. But that it's about a regular journey to the cross. To be reminded of our brokenness and our mistakes and our constant reliance on God. Rob Bell puts it like this. It is one thing to be forgiven. It is another thing to become more and more and more the person God made you to be. And I seriously can't imagine that any Christian is ready to say that they've reached that point yet. Where we've become everything that God made us to be. And so that means getting real. Ready to confront the reality of who I am deep down. And not putting on the cloak of respectability that Jesus had so much to say about to so-called religious people. Instead of the arrogant certainty of evangelicals who seem to think they know everything and have the answer to everything. And they can't afford to own up to not having all the answers. It's exactly what we see the early church trying to do. Owning up to their mistakes and weaknesses. And yet, still, with all those mistakes, having an amazing impact for Jesus in their day. And so it's now our turn to take to the field, to keep the dream alive, to take responsibility for what the church of Jesus is going to be in this generation. And as Rob Bell puts it, to rediscover the beautiful, dangerous, compelling idea that a group of people 
surrendered to God and to each other, really can change the world. We haven't arrived yet. We have so much more to be changed in us. We are still so far from what God made us to be. We all have so much junk in our lives that needs to be dealt with. And yet despite all that, the amazing message of the grace of God is that he can still use a church made up of people like us to really change our world.